Go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here at Sedaris. And uh, now we enter into our time of teaching. We do this every week uh, that we might understand the Word of God uh, that we have recorded for us here in the 66 books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, normally we spend uh, time in one book and we walk through it section by section, verse by verse. Uh, we're in a little bit of a different series this week, so if you're newer with us, I just know this is slightly different. We're taking a whole book of the Bible and doing more of an overview sermon. We'll do that for the next 12 weeks. We're in the Minor Prophets. Today we're in the Prophet Joel. We call them Minor Prophets not because they're actually minor. They actually tell us a major gospel. So we're calling this series Minor Prophet, Major Gospel. Gospel just means good news. So um, what you're going to hear in these prophets is pretty intense it's not maybe going to feel like good news in the way we think of good news. It's not sentimental. It's not nice, uh, but it's actually kind. In fact, as Christians, uh, we should not be Pollyanna. We should not just seek for niceness. We should seek for kindness. And kindness is to tell people the full truth, which is the whole good news. <laughs> and we'll see the prophets help us to do that in a really powerful way. So there's going to be some, some hard news, but it's good news for those of us who hear it and therefore adjust our lives accordingly, um, that we might, as the great prophets themselves, Mumford and Sons say, meet our maker. In fact, it was six years ago, so you can do the math. On my 30th birthday, my beautiful, amazing, lovely wife brought me the best birthday gift I'd ever received, tickets to Mumford and Sons at Red Rocks in Colorado. We were living in Denver at the time. We were, uh, I was a student at Denver Seminary, uh, getting my master's in divinity. And, and, and at that time, Mumford and Sons was cool. I don't even know, are they still cool? I'm so old. I think they're still cool. They were really cool back then. And I'll never forget, do you know their song, uh, Awake My Soul? Do you know their song? It goes like this, Awake My Soul, for you were made to meet your maker. That's the message of Joel. Awake, my soul, for you were made, you were created to meet your maker. Now, I won't ever forget this. Hearing 15 to 20,000 people at Red Rocks Amphitheater with these giant, uh, beautiful stones just the acoustics are amazing, and, and, and 15,000 people chanting at the top of their lungs and dancing and crying out, awake my soul, you were made to meet your maker, and they had no idea that they were quoting the prophets. Musicians are, in many ways, the prophets of our day, and the prophets were like Musicians, they have this way of weaving words together, poetic words that, that pierce and penetrate in ways that classic prose cannot. I'll never forget that. That's what Joel will say right here. Awake, you're about to meet your maker. Are you ready? So Joel will ask us today, and, and like a great Mumford and Sons song, there's incredible crescendo in the book of Joel. You know, that's why we love Mumford and Sons, right? It starts off kind of slow. In fact, this song was playing, if you didn't realize it, in the background. You said, why is there no music playing at the beginning? Because it started slow, and it builds, and it bubbles, and it boils until it gets to the end, and it's foot stomping, clapping, let's go. 
That's the book of Joel. We'll see iteration after iteration as it builds to this crescendo in what he'll call the coming of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. We'll talk about that here in a second. Now with all the prophets, and we'll see this in all the minor prophets, they're doing primarily three things. They are the mouthpiece of God. And as we said last week, you can go back and listen to our first sermon in the series last week on Hosea. Uh, What we said about the minor prophets is that um, they were probably not the only prophets in the land. But just like our time, there are prophets who truly are receiving inspiration through the Holy Spirit that are proclaiming true uh, communication from God. And there were those that were just tickling the ears of the people and tickling the ears of the kings. And in fact, many of those prophets were more popular. More people listened to them. But then there was this stream of truly faithful, truly God's prophets that were speaking the words. And they always said three things. One... You, Israel, and Judah, and we talked about it last week, the kingdom had been split, there had been a civil war, so now there's two nations within the nation of Israel. Israel and Judah, you have broken the covenant with God that he made with you, that Yahweh, the one true creator of the world, made with you, so you better repent, you better turn, confess, be forgiven, and sin no more. Second, If there's no repentance, then judgment. And third, they all say, yet there is hope beyond this coming judgment for a glorious future restoration. That God, in his loving kindness, which is a word that we see again and again and again in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word hesed, it it occurs 246 times in the Old Testament, and we see it again This week, God's loving kindness, his hesed, he will not allow you to just go your own way. He will continue to fight for you. And we saw in Hosea last week, just like a faithful husband, Hosea, fought for his wife, Gomer, even when she repeatedly, again and again, was adulterous, unfaithful, sold herself and her love to other people. We do that too with God. We choose to love other things in the ways we're meant to love God. We choose to put other people and other things before God. But like Hosea, God is a faithful husband and he comes and he finds us and he restores us and he invites us back in. That's his hesed, that's his loving kindness. It's faithfulness and loyalty. It's enduring, it's merciful, it's filled with grace. It's unfailing love. So we see that in the prophet's end. We see that again today in Joel. And so if you've got a copy of the scriptures, would you grab it and turn to the book of Joel with me? If you don't, there's some on the ends of your rows. Ask people to uh, pass those down to you if you don't have one. We're going to be going through the whole book of Joel, so we're going to be flipping around a lot. So it'd be great for you to have a physical Bible in front of you. Uh, you can also look it up on your phone, but, but I find it easier to flip through a physical copy of the scriptures. If you don't own a Bible personally, Just take this home with you. This is our gift from you. So make notes in it, uh, mark it up, uh, take it home with you. Uh, We want everybody to have a copy of the scriptures. We believe this is where life uh, begins when we hear the word of God and we receive it as our own. So uh, the book of Joel, it's going to be just a little bit to the right of the middle of your Bible. It's It's a small book. It's only three chapters. There's no shame in using the table of contents if you need to. Has somebody found it in the in the pew Bibles that we have here? What page is it? 493? Okay, 493. 
uh, if you're looking for the book of Joel. And here's what we're going to see. There's three chapters, and it's not quite perfect uh, three-chapter distinction, but there's going to be three movements that we see in the book of Joel. And I'm going I'm to call these three pitches, three pitches. And when I'm talking about pitches, I'm talking about sales pitch, I'm talking about a baseball pitch. You see that? You see how good that motion is? I used to play baseball back in the day. Turn that ball backwards, then you whip it right here, okay? If you're on our email list, you know that I said you're going to love baseball. Or if you love baseball, you're going to love this sermon, okay? So three pitches, and that's because we're going to talk about three different days of the Lord. This is a common theme throughout the prophets, and Joel really, uh, he focuses in on this day of the Lord. And there's three different days of the Lord that he talks about, okay? The first day of the Lord uh, talks about a locust invasion, like grasshoppers, close cousin is the locust, we don't see him a lot here, but we're going to talk about that. This is presently happening, and Joel will say, this is a day of the Lord. This is a day of the Lord. And what he'll say is, oh, you think that's bad, because it's presently happening, and people are experiencing the destruction of this locust swarm that come in and eat everything. He's going to say, you think this is bad? Just wait and see what will happen if you don't turn back, repent, turn back to Yahweh, your God. And then he's going to talk about a second day of the Lord. He's going to say there's coming very, very soon in your lifetime something like that locust swarm, but it's going to be a human army. And they are going to come in and they're going to invade Jerusalem and the land. And that's a type of the day of the Lord. But, oh, you think that's going to be bad? Just you wait and see what happens if you still refuse to turn, repent, and come back to God. And then the third day of the Lord is the day of the Lord, capital D. The first two were types of the day of the Lord, warning that the day of the Lord would be like this, but then he talks about a distant future day of the Lord in which God himself is coming to judge his people. And on that day, you will meet your maker, the actual day of the Lord. And so we'll talk about here, why does God give us three pitches? Why does, why does he give us a chance to see what destruction looks like and repent? And then Joel prophesies that more destruction will come, and then that comes to pass. And, and then he, why does he give us these chances? We'll talk about that as we go. Three strikes, you're out. We'll talk about that. So, are you there with me? In the book of Joel, we will read in chapter 1 about this coming locust invasion. I'm actually going to pull up a video that's going to play behind me as I read this aloud because most of us, they hear, oh, locust invasion, that must be bad. It must be like mosquitoes in northern Wisconsin. No, it's much worse. It's much worse. In fact, what happens when a locust invasion would flare up, usually at the beginning of the spring, it come down from Egypt in the south, and the winds would blow the locust up north, is if it was bad enough, they could devastate your crop. And then the land would fall into famine, and people would die, for there was no food. In fact, uh, in the ancient Near East, in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem, this would be like hurricanes in the Gulf Coast, where every year we have hurricanes, but some years it's really bad. And this year, when Joel is writing these prophecies, he's saying this is happening right now as a warning to us. 
In fact, locust storms could cover up to 400 square miles, 400 square miles of of bugs just sweeping through the land. And each square mile, this is going to freak you out if you don't like bugs, in each 400 square miles, so do the math, in each square mile, 100 million grasshopper-like bugs sweeping through the land, devastating it. And each bug can eat its own weight every single day. You think this is serious? <laughs> you think this is serious, the day of the Lord? This picture that he gives to us? It's so serious. In fact, it's so serious that uh, in the Hebrew language, there's nine unique words for locust, meaning they thought about it a lot. It was a big deal. So they have nine words to help us understand which stage of growth these locusts are in. In the Akkadian language, which the Syrian and Babylonian empire that surrounded Israel, they had 18 words for locusts. So it was a big deal. These, this was a big problem. This b- brought much pain and destruction. This is a big deal. So let's read it with you. And as we're reading it, are we ready? Keep your eyes on this. This is going to terrify you a little bit. So the word, okay, hold on, wait a sec. The word of the Lord, verse 1, came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And here's what the word of the Lord said. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number, its teeth and its lion's teeth, and it has fangs of the lioness, and it has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. I'll stop there. Are we watching this? Is this terrifying to you? Could be 400 miles wide, and in each square mile, one million of those bugs. And they eat everything. That's all they do is eat. It's like a teenager at a pizza party. <laughs> it's terrible. There's nothing left. They eat it all. I just wanted you to see this. Because we can read the scriptures and for us it's not familiar. But this is, the, this is what, through his words, this is what Joel is bringing to mind for every person of Israel who read his prophecy. This is what the day of the Lord will be like. Thank you, BBC Earth. <laughs> we salute you. Okay. Yeah, everything is gone. In fact, I was, <laughs> I was thinking about this. I, I like the analogy of a teenager at a pizza party. Uh, I also remember at the very first wedding I ever went to, so I was only like 21 years old, I think, um, and a really good friend of mine who also played offensive line for the Washington Huskies. He was at this wedding. It was his first wedding too. And, and I have this vivid memory of the party had kind of ended. Um, it was a fairly tame party as, as party goes. It was, and so there was lots of wine glasses that had uh, leftover wine in it. And I just remember my buddy. <laughs> I looked over. I said, what is he doing? And he was just, 
he was scavenging for all the leftover wine, and he was just <laughs> drinking all the wine as he went to each. And, and, and I thought, wow, that's unhealthy. And he was like the locusts. He could drink his weight each and every day. It was quite amazing. He was a big man. And he was just drinking up all the wine. Now, look at how interesting this is. Look at verse 5. Awake, who? You drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine. Weep and wail because of the sweet wine. It's cut off from your mouth. Now, this is actually really funny and ironic because obviously... There are a multitude of sins in any land, but, but Joel is highlighting, he's saying, isn't it how, how ironic it is that God is, is sending a locust swarm and, and the locust will kill all your vineyards so there won't be any grapes, so you won't have any wine, so actually the person that should weep and wail the most is the drunkard. You will have no wine to drink. It will be gone. This is irony. He's saying... Of all people, it's you drunkards. He's not saying be a drunkard. He's just saying, of all people, you guys should awake and stop sinning. For you will not even be able to sin anymore because God will take away your drink of choice. This is sort of the beauty of the prophets. They had a way of just, of just poking in at, at, at the incredible stupidity of God's people. And the ways that they continued to take the sweet things that God had given them and ultimately make them gods. And he said, God's going to take that away from you. You'll be weeping and wailing because your wine is gone. So that's the first. That's the first. It'll be complete devastation. If you, if you were to continue reading, you'd see that, that uh, in chapter 1, Joel references eight types of fruit that will be completely gone from the land. And so the reason he does that is seven is the number for completeness. In the Hebrew language, he's saying seven would be complete, but these, this locust storm is so bad, eight types of fruit will be gone. So it's everything will be gone and then some. Beyond that, it will be destruction. And so you know what you should do? Awake. Awake. Now, before we move on to the second pitch, to the second day of the Lord, let me remind you of something. Who is he telling to awake? At this point in his prophecy, who is he telling to awake? He's telling the people of God. You see, sometimes we read the prophets and we think, oh, we're talking about those other people over there. Those other people have a problem with turning away from the Lord. But no, the prophets are all written to God's people. That's you and me. So if you consider yourself a Christian, this is to you. Awake. Awake. Don't assume the prophets are speaking to somebody else or to non-Christians or to some other nation. Awake. He's speaking to the people of Israel, people who thought they were good with God. Awake, for you were made to meet your maker. Are you sure you're ready? Pitch number two. So turn with me. To chapter 2. This is very similar to the first pitch. In fact, what we'll see is that a lot of the language of the locust is used again 
But he's actually not talking about locust anymore, even though he's, he, he's piggybacking off the language he used. He said, remember that locust storm was like? There's going to be a storm that looks just like locusts. It says it's going to be human beings from other nations that are coming to overrun the great cities of Israel, Jerusalem the capital, and to take you away, just like the locusts took away our food. Just like, and it's coming soon, and it's coming soon. So read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. That's a call to arms. That was terrible. Anybody have a good trumpet? I'd love to hear it. No? Okay. Talk to me after the service. Work on my game. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem as well. Let all inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. There like never has been before, nor will ever be again after them. Okay, here's the picture. Now on the mountaintops they see the swarms of a human army coming into town. Now, who sent this army? This is fascinating about Joel. Who sent this army? Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10, chapter 2. The earthquakes before them because of the stomping, the marching of the armies. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Look at this. The Lord... Do you read it in the actual Hebrew? Yahweh utters his voice. The NIV translates it this way. The Lord thunders ahead of his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is crazy. God is sending a foreign army, and he's the one in charge of it. God's responsible for this army coming. Yahweh is sending a foreign invader into the land of Israel because he wants to send them a message. He wants to wake them up. The locust storm didn't wake them up. He's going to send a greater army. It's, it's a debate. The thing about Joel, which you've probably noticed is different than Hosea, we don't have a time frame we don't know exactly when Joel was writing these words like we do in Hosea. We also don't know a lot about Joel the person. We just know that he's written these words. So we don't know. Some, some scholars just say it's the Assyrian invasion, some the Babylonian. It doesn't really matter. These were two foreign nations, nations that did not worship Yahweh, that, that God himself is leading into overthrow Israel to wake them up to the fact that their sin is due great punishment from the Father. Sometimes we experience punishment in this life and God's responsible for it because he's a good father. And if you love your child, you'll wake them up to the greater destruction that's coming if, if they keep going in the way that they're going. So maybe you've experienced what feels like the punishment of God, that's his love, that's his kindness to wake you up 
Because if you keep going that way, when you meet your maker, you will not know him. Lots of times you can't see it in the moment, but you look back on it later in your life and you thank God for bringing that into your life so that you could wake up. I've had that in my life so many times. I've even prayed for it. God, if I'm going the wrong way, wake me up. Bring me judgment. Now, so that I don't experience the judgment on that day. The day, capital D, day. Okay? So a human army comes in. They're going to devour the people of God. Just like the locusts devoured the vegetation. This is not a pretty sight. God's leading them himself. It is his judgment upon his people out of love. And then we see a word in verse 12. Look at verse 12. We saw the same word in Hosea, if you heard last week. It says, yet. Right after it said, the Lord leads this foreign army to take over his people. Who can endure it? It says this, yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Here's what he's saying. Rend means rip. And what the ancient peoples, not just Israel, but other ancient peoples would do when they were truly lamenting their sin or lamenting something that had happened, they would physically tear their clothes to show that they had contrition. Okay? He's saying, don't just rip your garments. Don't fake it. Let your heart be ripped open. He says, I want your heart to return to me. Don't just fake it. Then it says, return to your God. That, that word return, shiv, in the Hebrew means repent, turn around. You're going the wrong way, turn around. Return to the Lord for he is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Guess what word that is? Hesed. Hesed. Just like we saw in Hosea. And he relents over disaster, meaning he will stop pouring out his judgment upon you. Verse 14, then he says, who knows whether he will turn, that's the word shiv, and leave a blessing behind him. Here, here, here's, here's what the prophet is saying. Return to the Lord, return to the Lord, and he will return to you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And so look at verse 15. How do we do this? Look at verse 15. Blow the trumpet again, this time not as a warning to run from the coming invasion. Blow the trumpet again right here, and it says, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Even nursing mothers, you don't get to skip church. It says right here. Let the bridegroom leave his room. Even if you just got married. Come to church, worship God, assemble with the people, and the bride, let her leave her chamber. It is so serious, we don't have time to wait and waste. Come together, gather, and begin to once again worship your one true God. If you turn back to Him, He will turn back to you. That's the right response. We do not run in terror once we realize it's God who's sending the army. 
we turn back to God and we worship Him and we give Him our life and we rend our heart, not just our garments. We don't just fake it. We don't just fake the words. We don't just fake communion. We don't just give our sacrifice. We don't just give our money to the church and hope, okay, I think I'm good with God. You know, I gave a little to Him. He gives a little to me. No, we rend our hearts. We rip our hearts open. We let our hearts be conformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ who said that He died on the cross for our sin. That should rip our heart open. That that's what God had to do to bring us back to Him. Let your heart be ripped open and return and assemble with the people and cry out to God for mercy and grace and salvation. Maybe if we do that, Joel says, maybe God will relent and give us blessing. And we'll see as we go, he does just that. Look at verse 18. In fact, it says, then if we do that, we rend our hearts, we rip our hearts And truly are contrite for leaving our first and greatest love for the lesser loves that the world has to offer if we come back. Then the Lord, he has become jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach amongst the nations. And look again, look again. Verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, when I sent it among you. And then drop down to verse 26, end of verse 26, and my people shall never again be put to shame. And he says it again at the end of verse 27, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Isn't that a great promise? If we rend our heart to God, no matter how far and how deeply we have rebelled against Him, no matter how much we have loved the things of the world more than we've loved God, no matter how much we've worshipped other gods more than the one true God, Yahweh, our Maker, if we rend our heart, if we, if we truly repent of our sin and turn back to Him and give Him what is due to Him, our love and worship, our 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 joy, that if that's focused all in God, then we shall never be put to shame again. It's a beautiful promise. We see it again and again in the prophets. And that brings us then to our third prophecy, our third pitch. And this pitch is about a future day, future day, that is the day that these first two pitches have just, they've just sort of helped us see what it's going to be like to help wake us up so that when we get to this third day, we're ready to meet our maker. Because on this final day of the Lord, God himself will visit us. God himself will visit us. Uh, read with me Joel three twelve. On that day when the Lord visits us, it says, Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Jehoshaphat is just a Hebrew word that means Yahweh judges. Yahweh judges. So that's the future day of the Lord. It's coming. We'll read more about it here in a second but I want to I want to say something really quick why does God do this why, why does he give us in Joel and he gives us this in our own lives as well 
chance after chance after chance to see what the day of the Lord coming will be like. Why does he give us pitch one, two, before he gives us pitch three? To answer that question, I want to look at 2 Peter verse three, or chapter 3, verse 9. We have it up here for you. Actually, I'm going to look at the whole 2 Peter, <laughs> so it's not just verse 9. I want to read this to you. So this is in the New Testament, okay? So the Apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus, uh, who saw Jesus do his miracles, who saw Jesus crucified on a cross and die, and then who saw Jesus risen from the grave and ate with him, and got instructed by him of go take my good news and my message to all the people. This is hundreds and hundreds of years after Joel's writing this. This is what Peter says. This is what Peter says when he's writing his letter to Christians in the first century. He says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. I think he's talking about Joel. And the command given by our Lord and Savior, that's Jesus the Christ, through your apostles, Peter being an apostle. Okay, Here's what he says. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But, they're deliberately, but they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day. You see that in the New Testament just like in the Old Testament. The day is coming. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Pause there. Do you see what's happening? Peter's explaining to them why God gives chance after chance after chance, why he gives pitch one and pitch two before he sends pitch three. He wants you to repent. That is his loving kindness. So we think, why is God waiting so long? Why does he keep giving Israel chances? Why does he keep giving me a second chance? He is loving you so well. Go back one more. He is loving you in the way only God can. It's not slowness. Because a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. He wants everyone to repent and turn and know him. That's so important to remember when we read the prophets because it's, it's pretty harsh. But it's not slowness. It's not slowness, as some count slowness. He's hoping that we will repent. Okay, let's keep going, keep reading. But the day of the Lord will come. It'll come like a thief. The heavens will disappear. You know what I mean? It comes like a thief. No thieves calling you up and saying, hey, by the way, I'm going to rob you when you're on vacation. That happened to me, by the way. Broke into my house, stole everything in my house. Actually, they didn't steal anything in my house. They opened every drawer in my house. And the only thing they stole was my whiskey and the change out of my, out of my change jar. Couldn't take the bus for like a week. It's terrible. But as the thieves come, you don't know when they're coming. 
They'll just come. And the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Just like the locusts laid bare. Do we have one more verse here, Kurt? Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. That's why God gives us chance after chance after chance with just small judgment, small judgment, small judgment, so that when the day of the judgment comes, which we're about to read about, we might have repented and turned to him and found peace with God. Do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God? Now look at verse 28 in Joel with me. Look at verse 28. This is actually the beginning of this last day of the Lord. It says, And it shall come to pass afterwards, a long time after in the distant future, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now guess what? This is quoted by the same Peter at his first sermon ever in Pentecost when the Spirit of God comes down on God's people. You can go listen to that online. We preached through the book of Acts uh, just this last year. You can go read about that moment where this prophecy is literally fulfilled in the New Testament church. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and he ascends into heaven, he says, I'm sending my spirit, and it literally happens. He sends his spirit, and Joel's prophecy is fulfilled. Now you say, well then, that means the day of the Lord was then, right? No, the day of the Lord began, meaning this messianic age, the age of the spirit, it's begun, meaning the ball has left the hand of God. Judgment is near. We don't know. It's coming like a thief, but it has left the hand of God. It's like a slow motion pitch. It's coming. It's coming. We don't know exactly when it's going to cross home plate, but it is coming. It has left his hand. We know that because the first part of this prophecy has been fulfilled at Pentecost. Whoa, we just about fell over there. Okay. (laughs) That was my slow motion. I was really excited about doing slow motion for you. I don't know how I did. Talk to me afterwards if you're an expert on slow motion. There's coming a day. There's coming a day. Look at 3, 1 through 3. Look at 3, 1 through 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of Yahweh judges, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Why? On behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, the remnant of Israel who will repent and come, and all peoples, because His Spirit has been poured out on all nations. Actually, you can see that in uh, verse 31. Let's read that real quick in chapter 2. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Therefore, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone, all nations who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Apostle Paul He quotes this, Romans chapter 10. 
And so on behalf of my people of all nations and my heritage Israel, those left in Israel who have remained faithful because they have been scattered among the nations and have divided up the land and have cast lots for my people, he's talking about his enemies, and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it, because of them I will judge. You hear that? He's talking about human trafficking. He's saying every form of evil will be judged on that day. This is good news, my friends. Look at the very end, the very last verse of Joel. Chapter 3, verse 21. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged. That day I will avenge. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Friends, the reason why this is good news is if you've ever experienced evil, and we all have, if you've ever seen the effects of evil and you've always cried out, where is our God? Where is he? Is he sitting back silent? God's saying, I do not forget anything. I see everything. I see every public and private deed. I see every evil. And I will, on that day, judge it all. That should swell joy in us. Justice is coming in the day of the Lord. No injustice will be allowed in God's land. That day is coming, my friends. That, that, that feeling that you have, that pressure that you feel inside of you of why and when and how, it will all be made right on the day of the Lord. And for those of us who know God, we're on the right side of that judgment. But God wishes everybody would know him and repent now so that they would not have to sit and be judged Look at verse 9 through 16. It says this. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Prepare for war. Stir up your mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you'll say, wait a minute. I've read Scripture somewhere else that says when God puts everything back together, He's going to turn all the swords into plowshares, which is a farming utensil. Well, Joel says it the other way. Here, here's, here's what's important to realize. I'm laughing because Kurt's laughing in the back. What do we call it? Farming tool? You didn't like utensil. You're picturing me out there with a fork just plowing the lines. Yeah, it'll take a while. Let's use a tool. Let's use a tool. Okay. Let's use some farm equipment. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. We're about to get really serious, and when you sit back there and laugh, it's challenging for me. Okay. Before the peace comes... War must come. Do you know that? We like to talk about the peace of God that will come, but it only comes when God brings war on all evil and all his enemies and all those who rebel against him and all those who refuse to turn to him. Verse 11, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there, bringing down your warriors let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Verse 15, multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. 
The sun and the moon are dark and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars in Zion and utters his voice in Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge for his people. Here's what's going to happen. People will think they'll come up against the Lord with their armies. He says, come, come, do what you can, come up against me. But you know what? There's going to be no war in that valley. Instead, the Lord God sits on his throne and he judges all the peoples that have ever lived. And Jesus actually says, I will be the one sitting on that throne. Look at this here. Jesus says in several places during his earthly ministry, he says as much. Do you have that for me, Kurt? Okay, Jesus said this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. Sound familiar? And the stars will fall from the heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. The Son of Man will come in out of heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. In John, Jesus said this, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a, what's it say at the bottom? Got cut off. I do have the Bible memorized, by the way. No, I don't. Well, it's, it's, what do you got, Kurt? John 12, 48. I feel like we've got to finish Ah, Jesus said, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The word that I have spoken, the word that I have spoken becomes our judge. Jesus saying, I told you, I warned you, I tried to wake you up. And those very words will be our judge. Look at what the Apostle John writes in his revelation of the end of time. It says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him seated on it. For his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up its dead who were there in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into that same lake. Jesus will come again. And this time he's not coming as the suffering servant who dies for our sin upon a cross and who rose again to prove that he had accomplished what he came to do. He's coming now to do what Joel predicted he would do and sit in the valley of Jehoshaphat and judge all nations. The dead will rise. Those who have died in Christ will come back and will all stand before the judge, before his throne. And verse 12, I will sit to judge, Jesus says. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows everything. And from that day on, look at verse 17. So that you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Right now, God allows those who are strangers to him to come amongst his people, to live in his land, to eat milk and honey, but there's coming a day after he judges, on that day, the day of the Lord, when strangers shall never again pass through God's kingdom. Jesus himself predicts this 
when he tells his followers. Do we have that uh, verse up here? It's the next one. Oh yeah, he says to this. Jesus told those that were listening to him, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, because he's the one sitting on the throne, I never knew you. You are a stranger to me. Maybe you rent and ripped your clothes, but you didn't rip your heart. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus said this, friends. And there's coming a day when strangers shall never pass again through the kingdom of God. For those of you who have peace with God, this is an amazing promise. Look at verse 18. On that day, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with honey and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. It will be a wonderful, beautiful place to be in the presence of God for all eternity with Him. But only for those of us who have peace with Him now. Not for the enemies of God. When that day comes, the enemy of God will, enemies of God will sit in judgment. And the book of everything that they are and have done will be opened in front of them and they will have no plea. But for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when our book of deeds that are just as ugly just as rotten, smell just as bad, is opened up before us, we have a great plea, and that is that our Savior Jesus Christ died for us on that beautiful, glorious cross. And he took the judgment that God will pour out on the nations. He took that on himself that day so that I might not be a stranger any longer to my maker. Are you ready for this day? When that third pitch comes finally across home plate, will you be ready? How do you get ready for that? How do you get ready to hit that pitch? Do you know the answer? Train harder? It's not the answer. Work on your fast twitch muscles to the 99 mile an hour fastball? Not gonna happen. Get in the batting cage, practice, practice, practice. Nope. The only way to withstand that third pitch is to step out of the batter's box, rip up your contract with the Yankees, and walk across to the other dugout and say, I surrender. I want to be on your team. You can't hit the pitch. The day is coming. That pitch is coming. You will not be able to hit it. Don't even try. That's called self-righteousness. It's just another form of lawlessness. You cannot live up to what you've been called. So you must step out, rip up your contract, stop being an enemy of God, join his team, and do everything that he tells you to do. Not because it's going to help you hit the pitch, but because that's what it means to be on his team. Have you switched teams? <laughs> or are you sitting there trying to live a righteous life, trying to live up to everything that God's called you to be, and then failing? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and been unable to catch up with what God has required of us. And so we cry out to Jesus, I'm done I rip it up, my contract with the world and, and self-righteousness and works. I rip it up and I fall upon your mercy and your grace and he receives us onto his team and in the day of the Lord, that fear that we have when we know it's coming is turned to joy because we have peace with him because we were made to meet our maker. Would you pray with me? Father God, we know that this day is coming. 
because you've told us and everything that you've predicted in the prophets has come to pass. We thank you for giving us warning after warning. We thank you for telling us again and again that we do not want to be on the other side of your fastball. We thank you that you know that we're so stubborn and so bullheaded that then you tell us one more time, God, we rip our hearts, we rend our hearts. We ask for you to change us. We ask for you to forgive us of our sin through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we do that because we know that you are good. We know that you are for us. We know that with great patience and not slowness, but great patience, you wait in love for us to repent. God, so we do that again. And we do it maybe for the first time tonight. Maybe for the thousandth time tonight, we repent and we say, I tried to go my own way. Now I want to do it your way, God. Tell me how you want me to live my life. For your kingdom. For your glory. For the fame of your name. And therefore the blessing of all peoples who might come to know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to do something slightly different here tonight. I'm going to ask Pastor Ryan to come up. He's going to lead us in communion. But I think one of the reasons we struggle with giving Jesus ownership of our hearts, ownership of our story, ownership of our lives, why we really struggle with that is because we doubt and we question, is he actually good? No, 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 not good in the sense of like, like we use the word good now, like he's okay, he's not bad, but is he actually good? Is he the definition of goodness? Is that God? Because if we were convinced of that, then we would not oppose his rule and reign in our lives. We would not show up to the valley of decision still thinking that we need our army. But we all do this at times. We all doubt. Is is he good? Is he actually good? Does he actually want good for me? And so we're going to sing this first song here. Uh, It's a song that reminds us that God is good. And if you know that he's good, if you know that this is true today, if you're experiencing this as truth today, I want you uh, to sing at the top of your lungs, not just for yourself, but because there's somebody else in this room who is struggling to believe that God is good. That's why we gather together. Some days we're really struggling to be convinced that God is for me and God is good, and that's why we struggle to give him our heart. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand now, uh, just because I want us to really sing this song. Um, especially if you know that God is good, let it be, be your amen. And let's wait till the second song to come forward and take communion. Ryan's going to introduce it to us now, but then I want us to just sing and declare corporately that God is good and that we want him to be the king of our heart. And we want it now. We don't want to wait till we know it's true when he's standing in judgment over the world, okay? So Ryan, would you lead us in the Lord's Supper?